Welcome to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast, the premier provider of leadership consulting, culture shaping, and senior level executive search services. Every day, we're privileged to talk with fascinating people who are shaping the future through their leadership and vision. Each episode, you'll hear a different perspective from thought leaders and innovators. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. Hello, I'm Claire Skinner, partner in charge of Hydric and Struggles London office and a member of the industrial practice. In today's podcast, I'm speaking to Nick Boyle, founder and group CEO of Lightsource BP, the global leading provider of solar and smart energy solutions. Nick founded Lightsource in 2010 as just a six-person startup. Within five years, Lightsource became Europe's largest solar player and operator. Nick, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to speak you to us today. You make me sound very impressive. <laughs> you are terribly impressive. So, you um, founded Lightsource in 2010. Since then, the energy sector has transformed radically, particularly in the UK. How has, how has Lightsource evolved in that period, in the last 10 years? One of the things that, that we've experienced in the UK, and I, my assumption is it's probably been similar in other countries, is that the energy sector, because it's going through such incredible transition, is that you sort of constantly have to reinvent yourself. We, we had to do it probably seven or eight times in the UK alone. Um, and I suppose the, the difference between the, the companies that survive and the companies that don't is how quickly you can actually adapt to the changing market. We entered the industry... And I suppose the catalyst to it from our perspective was a very, very handsome feed-in tariff. The whole point about a feed-in tariff or a support regime in, in a jurisdiction is to, is to drive a market towards grid parity. The UK had seen that they needed to start the momentum of, of solar, and therefore they kick-started that with a very attractive uh, tariff. A lot of companies moved in, including us. But unfortunately, from a, from a UK perspective too many moved in and therefore they realized the error of their ways and decided that they would significantly cut the tariff and I suppose that leads ultimately to my talk about reinventing yourselves we in in sort of February 11 it was announced to us that the 33 pence per kilowatt tariff that we were uh, relying on and on which we had focused we had found out that on the 1st of August that was going to be cut to to eight and a half pence. So first reinvention, we changed from a company that was focused on develop, develop, develop to a company that was focused on buy as much as possible because we, having come from a financing background, um, had raised the money. And therefore what we then did from February to August was find sites that we could buy off other people, build uh, and connect. So again, reinvention number one. Reinvention number two is to then find how we in the new world of eight and a half pence per kilowatt, how we could make solar work. So I, I suppose the, the biggest change for us as an organization was that transition from being in a market where it's high margin, small volume, which is what the feed-in tariff was. We had to invent ourselves via a number of different iterations to where we are today, which is very much a throughput model. It's massive volume, small margin. The world doesn't owe solar a living. Ultimately, we've got to compete on the same level playing field as everyone else. If we're not cheaper, then we don't deserve a seat at the table. Other jurisdictions and and other businesses throughout the world have, have managed to achieve that. Really interesting fact that in 2017, there was more spent on new generation in solar globally than on any other form of energy generation. So more than nuclear, more than wind, more than oil and gas, etc. Which is a really interesting thing to have happened from our 
are starting in 2010 and the industry starting not too long before that. We've been through the scratching our head trying to find out how we could constantly drive to be the cheapest form of electricity generation originally supported and buoyed up by a feed-in tariff where the government stepped in and supported that but over time having to stand on our own two feet to the point where today we're building in the UK completely subsidy free and we can do that because of all of our education and all of our familiarity that's been built up over the the years whenever we had a support mechanism in place. How have you found that evolution and reinvention? Because when we look at the market, you're going to have to continue to do that. What is it special about your team that has allowed you to keep that pace and agility? That's a a big question. Uh, There there are many facets to that. One of the things that is really interesting about this industry, which is usually a negative, but I see it as a positive, is is this is a we-don't-know-what-we-don't-know industry. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you know, we're not... I'm not recruiting a guy who's done it for the last 50 years or 40 years and saying, hey, can we do it again? Only can we do it bigger and shinier? We're actually in an industry where we're sort of learning as we go. It's been a cottage industry that's shifted into industrialized size now, which is fantastic. I made a statement a couple of years ago that there would be more deployment of solar in applications that we haven't even thought of yet Mm -hmm. in the next 50 years than in applications that we have. And I think that's absolutely true. Now, what's that got to do with the question that you asked? The way I think we've differentiated ourselves is by recruiting and empowering smart like-minded individuals if you do that they don't tend to leave and if they don't tend to leave then that's why you get this constant in the business which is a senior management team that are educated and rounded in their views but also have got the experience we're only a, a business that's nine years old that's not an old business but in the solar world it really is an old business we now have a relationship with bp and it's really funny you you go around the room and you meet a number of senior people in bp and they say i've been with bp 27 years i've been with pp 30 years 33 years or whatever someone who's been with light source for five years is an old timer and and but but that that's about the industry that we're in i think and and i suppose the reason why we've kept good individuals is we treat them right and we we look after them but i think more importantly it's about empowering those individuals in a world where the decisions haven't been made yet to create a solution if you like we had a situation where we had people running departments of 20 30 people and they were not even 30 yet Mm. because they were the right individuals for the job so tell us you talked about bp and having followed you and worked with you for some time you're a, a business which has grown through partnership and most notably of course with bp can you tell us sort of your thinking about the BP deal? I mean, it catapulted you from a UK player with a small international footprint to truly one where the world is your oyster. This is sort of 2016, 2017. We were sitting as a, you know, a sizable enough quarter of a billion pound business, which sounds big if you think about it from a UK perspective, given we'd built that from a standing start and bought out the entity that had brought mm-hmm. us to financially supported us to get to that point. We were sitting there, largest, as you say, largest business in Europe, you know, three just under 300 projects built and connected in a very short period of time. So we knew that our methodologies, our systems, our controls, etc., were really, really good. But we said, well, hang on a second here, what do we do? Do we do we sit back and We've done well, sit back and flick peanuts in our mouths and lie on a beach or whatever, you know, with the success that we'd enjoyed. <laughs> and you know me very well, not 
quite my sort of way to spend a day. Or do we say, well, hang on a second, is there something more we can do? We sort of looked at the world, and, and, and while we had been successful in the jurisdiction that we had focused ourselves on, we looked around and realized, well, actually, UK is not the only business that had gone through that exponential growth over the preceding years. The rest of the world had twigged on to solar as well. And therefore, I suppose we asked ourselves the question, are the skill sets and methodologies and systems transferable? Are we a one-trick pony? In other words, do we only lend ourselves to the UK market? Or could we actually do something different? The BP deal was the second step. The first step was saying, if we looked to take our skill set into a number of different markets, could we be successful? Our hypothesis was, within the solar farm fence, mm-hmm. how different can it be? We're not splitting the atom here. We're, you know, we're, in, we're knocking a bit of metal into the ground. We're sticking a frame on it and putting a solar panel on it, connecting it up and connecting it to the grid. It's more installation than it is manufacturing. The manufacturing is done in China when they're making the solar panels. So how different can it be if you're doing that in Timbuktu or, or wherever? Our hypothesis was that it was exactly the same. And even outside the fence... Well, what's it about? It's about grid, it's about land, and it's about whatever legislations are required in order to make sure that you adhere to the rules so that you can export your electricity. So inside the fence, very similar, and even outside the fence, while the local nuances might twist it in a particular way, it's the same principles. That was our hypothesis. So we reckoned, okay, if we're going to look at the world and decide whether or not we want to take another step, Mm -hmm. then what countries do we have to look at to quickly get us a view as to whether or not we have a business that could be potentially globalized and so we decided to choose some very different markets we had the europe remember we had in the in the guise Mm -hmm. of the uk so we decided to to go for india and the us because we reckon that if you had india the us and the uk you pretty much had an indication as to whether or not you could be successful elsewhere india very challenging market but huge potential uh us is actually not one market, it's states at the end of the day. So, it, And what we found out really, really quickly, and not surprisingly, was it's exactly the same. I mean, it really is. It's, there's little tweaks of differences, but it's exactly the same. And therefore, what that taught us was that if we decided we wanted to go to the next level and go from a local European player to a global player, that the barriers to entry were more financial than they were sort of intellectual skill set. So we went to Rothschild and said, all right, we want, we want someone that gives us global reach, gravitas, financial wherewithal, all of those bits and pieces that we were lacking. We had all the skills in the world. We had all the experience in the world in terms of, well, not in the world as it turns out, but in the UK <laughs> um, in terms of um, building solar parks and operating them efficiently. But we needed the other elements to truly go global. And we actually had about 14 different bidders, which was shocking for us. They fell into two distinct groups, pretty much 50-50. So half of them were your pension funds, whether it was your the Canadians, Singaporeans, etc. So those entities that sort of said, hey, look, solar produces a really predictable long-dated income stream with a bankable counterparty, so therefore that feels like an annuity. I want to get into that. So that's why they were interested. But that for us felt like we were just working for them rather than working for ourselves. And then the other half of the bidders were all strategics, and or were strategics rather, and all of them were oil and gas, or previously oil and gas. And it was really, really interesting to us because it's, it's count, it was counterintuitive to us that a company that pumps stuff out of the ground and sticks a match to it would necessarily see this as a natural progression. But actually, if you think about it in its most simplest form, 
for the last 100 odd years, the energy companies of the world have been oil and gas companies. They have, and no one complained about it as being not green and everything else then, because if the option was having energy or not having energy, people had energy. That, that was what the choice was. So if, if for the last 100 years, these businesses have been building themselves up into this position where they are basically the energy companies that drive the world, they're not likely to want to give up that position lightly. But what they're also not is stupid. They realise that in 2017, as I said earlier, there was more generation, more spent on new generation in solar than anything else. They realise that the cheapest form of electricity generation now is solar. And therefore, if they want to continue to be the energy supplier or the big energy companies of the world over the next 100 years, they need to get themselves in front of uh, solar. Actually, there's a stepping stone before that. If you look at electricity as a subset of the overall energy piece globally for the last 100 years and you compare it to how relevant an electricity is going to be as the deliverer of of energy globally it's becoming more and more relevant why overall energy demand is going to increase by two percent but electricity is going to increase by significantly more and there's really simple explanations electric vehicles transportation energy in the home uh, heating in the home etc these are all moving towards electricity. So if you're moving towards electricity as a larger part of the energy mix and solar as a subset of of electricity generation is the cheapest form of generation, then it's not too surprising that all of those strategic bidders were oil and gas companies who didn't understand renewables but thought, hey, do you know what, I better set up and get an understanding of it. And with the um, pledge of the UK government on net zero greenhouse emissions by 2050. Do you think that's going to accelerate investment in renewables? Do you think that's going to impact the corporate PPA market? This is a definite. There's absolutely no question. It's a when, not an if. There is absolutely no question that there is a huge amount of renewables coming, absolutely more than anyone thinks, because the speed of change will only It'll only gather momentum. Interestingly, while that's great from our perspective, it it creates some significant challenges in terms of balancing the grid, in terms of storage, in terms of solar's not too hot at night, last time I checked. There's all of these different challenges, but the prize ultimately is huge. And given how big the scale of the market opportunity is, the opportunity for solar and renewables, and of course storage and EV coming through as well, how do you prioritise where you and your team spend your time, how are you thinking that through as a business? The first thing that we're focusing on at the moment is building critical mass in in, in countries. Now, the way that we look at the world has sort of changed since the deal. Originally, we would have, had we not done a deal with an oil and gas company, we would have looked at the world through a solar lens. So the radiation in country, Mm -hmm. sunny is better than not sunny the price of the electricity that we're competing with, the legislation in place, the availability of land, etc. So all of the attributes that are required in order to build a large solar business in country. That's the first lens. The second lens, which is the new one, is a BP lens. You know, BP are in 90 countries globally. Why would we go to a country where they're not? You know, it it, it makes no sense. When we get to the 90 countries, okay, number 91 will be a country where they're not. You know, there's nothing like an unfair advantage. If If I'm looking to build significant volume in a country, why would I not go to one where I already have the advantage of having infrastructure, offices, employees, 
um, connectivity with government, the regulator, etc., etc. And those are the positives, the invisible positives that BP affords us that other companies that are maybe competing with us perhaps don't have access to. You've talked about the agility and, and the con- challenges you've, over, you've had to overcome to pivot and change and reinvent yourself to be where you are now. Looking forward over the next five years, are there anything that's worrying you that's really going to knock you off your stride, whether it's um, trade issues or um, economic policy, continuing challenges of some Look, groups not they are a constant. recognising climate change? They, they are a constant at the end of the day. you know. I, but we're part of the solution. So in a funny way, if something hugely negatively affects us, it hugely negatively affects everyone else like us and therefore the trajectory has changed and I don't think the trajectory is likely to get changed you know renewables are going to become an ever more important part of the energy mix that's a fact yes there will be turns in the road in certain jurisdictions but you you deal with them it's not like we're being picked on everyone's in exactly the same boat and therefore the relative attractiveness and the pricing that you can get to is affected but it's the same for all Uh, it's a level playing field The, the the world has moved to um, a bidding scenario where you submit a tender. I mean, it's it's incredible. We're now in a situation where, you know, Brazil, we, we, we just won a tender in Brazil, and it was the cheapest price ever transacted for renewables in Brazil. It's, it's incredible. You know, this is where the industry, this is where the world is going. Yes, it's going to create challenges in terms of imbalance and all the other bits and pieces, but ultimately... I think the core of what we do, which is producing cheap green electricity, you know, that's, that's not going to go out of fashion. And as a leader in the market, who do you look to? What, whether it's individuals or whether it's businesses or sectors where you, you, you seek your inspiration from? I probably look around at other companies that are doing something similar. I mean, the likes of, you know, NL and, and Total Ren, et cetera. You're always, I, I'm not sure whether I'm looking at them for inspiration, but if I'm the only one paddling my canoe in this direction, maybe I'm getting it wrong. I mean, there, it's, it's <laughs> nice to see some other ones paddling alongside us, albeit we, we want to be in the lead um, while paddling. So I suppose looking around at the other entities and making sure that, you know, we're not missing something. And as a disruptor in the industry, are there other sectors that you look to who have been as disruptive as you have been to the market or or part of a a segment that is really disrupting the market? I'm not sure we've been disruptive. I I think we've taken advantage from the disruption, but the disruption was caused, in my opinion, by a Chinese chap getting on a plane in 2006, 2007, flying to Germany, buying a solar panel, bringing it home and taking it to bits and mass producing it. I mean, (laughs) that's the reason why today we sit where we are. You know, we're buying solar panels today at 5% of what we were buying them for 10 years ago. So 95% reduction. That's what has caused the revolution, nothing else. Ultimately, it's about price competitiveness. If we Mm -hmm. don't have price competitiveness, we have nothing. The reason why solar has gone so well is because of the fact that we can offer something at a price that is cheaper than conventional forms of generation. And that's because the Chinese mass production. 
There are other factors. We build a solar park today very, very differently from what we built 10 years ago. It was over-engineered. It was, you know, today we're just pushing the envelope to drive down price. And that's because ultimately in this bidding scenario that we're in, this this um, auction scenario, if you're an inch cheaper than everyone else, you win everything. But if you're an inch dearer than everyone else, you win nothing. But that drives the right behavior. It, it makes sure that we're constantly looking to drive our efficiency. And ultimately that means the customer gets cheaper electricity. So just pivoting to you, Nick, I mean, you're a serial entrepreneur now. How These light sources, your most recent venture, but I know you invest in other things as well. What, what advice would you give to budding entrepreneurs? <laughs> As, you, as they look to replicate, not not necessarily in the sector. I have sector. this really, really funny f- story that I find funnier than anyone else. But, <laughs> I, but, and, and, but, but it sort of illustrates the, the, the point. And it's not so much entrepreneur. It's more, um, I think you always run the risk of rushing, thinking you're ready to be CEO before you are. Basically, Picasso is sitting on Montmartre. And this let's say American woman comes up and goes, oh, Picasso, I love you, I love you. Um, will you paint me? And he says, go away, madam. I'm going to shorten this, given the fact we're on a podcast. But she goes <laughs> on and on and on at him, please paint me. Anyway, he eventually gives in and he sits her down and he takes a piece of paper and he literally with four swishes of the brush is completed. And he, she comes around and she looks at it and she says, oh my God, that's amazing. That is absolutely fantastic. And goes on about it. And then she says, how much do I owe you? And he says, one million francs. And she says, but it only took you two minutes. And he says, no, madam, it took me all my life. Mm. And, and I think we're all too fond of thinking, oh, I like the idea of being an entrepreneur. I'm going to be a CEO. I promise you, it's not fun if you haven't got a little bit of experience. This is the first one that I've done as CEO on my own, in my own right. You know, it took me all my life to get to that position, if you like. I'd done the managing director, I'd done the sales director, I'd done all of those bits. And I think we are the sum of our experiences, ultimately. And I think people can rush in and actually get loads and loads of bits right, but get one bit wrong and it falls on its face. What I would definitely say to the budding entrepreneur is, Become a budding businessman and understand what makes a business tick. No matter how good your idea is, it'll never get out of the starting blocks if ultimately you don't have a business that is well-founded, well-funded and everything else. And, and I think the, the other thing that is, that is absolutely, for me, the most important point is that, you know, I always make this joke about I'm good at very little. I mean, I, someone said to me once that a CEO is a veneer of understanding of everything and a deep understanding of nothing, which is probably accurate <laughs> in my case. But but one, <laughs> one of the things that I, I, I do do well, and I don't do many things very well, but I'm good at surrounding myself with people that are better than me. And I mean better than me in the areas in which they are expert. So my job is to manage those individuals' expertise to form a fully rounded business. And I think sometimes people rush in and forget that if you don't have all the building blocks in place, you're not going to get very far. So what would you like your legacy to be? I know I know you're cringing at this. <laughs> but as a leader, what would you like to be known for? We've said that the reason why we went from UK, sort of Europe-focused to global, is that we wanted to drive the solar revolution mm-hmm. and be part of that. And for me... It would be great if LightSource, not me, but LightSource was seen as one of the architects 
of that solar revolution, not only in Europe, but, but globally. That, I mean, that would just be, you know, an amazing thing to be part of, I think. Nick, thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time.